Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, welcome to episode 160 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope that you're doing well and are all in the mood for some true crime today because this case is truly wild. But before we get started, we want to ask you all for help with our October episode. Please send your listener stories to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And this is for any story whether it's true crime related or paranormal. We would love to hear it. So we already have some submissions, and I say this every year, but what I do is I like collect them all in a Google folder, and then one night I just listen to them all with a lot of wine and scare myself. So if you've sent in your story, I have it saved, and I'm excited to dig into all of them. But if you could send your stories in, the more the merrier. And don't worry. If you think, it doesn't matter how wild it is, we want to hear it. Yes. All right. I I want to I want to sit here and have Kay tell me the story. I want to know. He does get scared. He's a little baby. But. I am. <laughs> I am, and I am not afraid to admit that. Yes. The strange and unexplained and weird stuff like that up my alley. Whatever you have, we are down. <laughs> okay. So, John, without any further ado, do you want to hear something crazy? Of course, I do. So before I get started, I wanted to say that when I picked this case to cover this week, it was before the wildfires that devastated Maui. And this case involves Hawaii. So we just wanted to say that our hearts go out to the families affected by the devastation and that we're going to donate a portion of what we receive from our sponsors to the Maui Wildlife Relief. Hawaii is America's paradise. And the largest of the islands that makes up the state is known as Big Island. Big Island is the most diverse of all the islands and is known for its stunning natural beauty, unique landscapes, and rich cultural heritage. It would take me an entire episode to talk about the atrocities that have occurred to the native people of Hawaii throughout history. So I'll just say that the Hawaiian people have a deep connection to their land, the sea, and their traditions, which they have kept alive through generations. Nowhere is that culture more alive than in the county of Puna on the eastern coast of Big Island. Our case today occurred in Lower Puna County. The beauty of the area, its gorgeous black sand beaches formed from volcanic activity and picturesque landscape, has attracted people from all over the world. And that is just what brought Sandy Ireland to the area in 1990. However, with every piece of paradise, there is a seedier side that usually transplants and tourists know nothing about. And unfortunately, in the winter of 1991, the Ireland family would learn that evil lurks in even the most beautiful of places. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. 
Our case begins at the tail end of 1991, and not only is it set in paradise, but on one of the happiest days of the year, Christmas Eve. At around 5 p.m. that day, two individuals were driving down a road that is near Kapaho Bay in Lower Puna. Now, this spot was a popular one. It was a place where locals could play, swim, and enjoy the tide pools. It was actually a really popular snorkeling place, and that's what the two were doing. And I say was because this area, unfortunately, was destroyed by lava flow in 2018. Just an aside, there was a significant volcanic event that resulted in devastating lava flows, and it lasted for three months. It engulfed entire neighborhoods, destroying coastline, this area in particular, homes, roads, and any infrastructure in its path. But that was where the couple had been. They were snorkeling in the bay, and they were headed back to their respective houses. However, something stopped the driver. It was a bicycle. On the side of the road, there was a new black mountain bike that looked as if it had sustained some damage. Concerned for the person who had been on the bike, the man pulled over and got out of his car and went to investigate. He saw that just beyond the bike, there was a tennis shoe and a clump of long blonde hair. The scene set him on edge. He was unsure of what had happened, but it was clear that it had not been good. A few minutes after the two had stopped, and just as they were going to start looking around the scene for the injured person, a second car pulls up to the location. A couple got out of the car, and the woman had the same shade of hair as the clump of hair that had been found near the abandoned shoe. She was frantic, and she began emphatically telling the two men that that was her bike. And she seemed scared to find the bike, and they thought that it was weird because they figured the person that got onto the bike was injured, so it was weird that she was just showing up saying it was her bike. And then Sandy Ireland explained to the two men that her 23-year-old sister Dana, who had been visiting her for the holidays with their parents, had borrowed the bike for a few hours prior, but she hadn't come home, so they went out looking for her. Oh, okay. I mean, it is kind of weird to, like, find the bike in, like, a, like a damaged state, almost as if there was, like, a hit and run. Like, because that's the first thing that I think of. Uh, if the bike's damaged, there's a, there's a flip-flop or a shoe uh, discarded somewhere. It seems like someone was hit, and then they, so whoever did it drove off. That is exactly what it seems like, but the only problem in this situation is that Dana's missing. Well, could someone have did, like, a, a hit? Well, I should, instead of a hit and run, more like a hit and take you into a car and leave. Right, and we've seen that happen before with, like, the Sarah Jogging case. Yeah. So the four of them proceeded to search the area and yell out Dana's name. Later, they would say that they searched in about a 100-yard perimeter from where the bike had been knocked down. But they had found nothing, and they hadn't heard anything, because the whole time Sandy is just screaming her sister's name because she's now desperate to find her. Sandy and her boyfriend went back home to call the hospital in the area to see if maybe she had been taken there. They were thinking that maybe the person that hit her felt bad and had maybe dr- driven her to the hospital. That's a possibility. It, it is. And they also don't know when this accident took place. So she might call the hospital and the hospital might say there's nobody here. But because the hospital is a considerable distance away from where she was hit, 
they might still be in in route to the hospital. Not just in route, but if let's say someone did do the right thing after hitting them, let's say, and bring them to the hospital. There's no, maybe she didn't have ID on her. So now they have a, a, a patient in the hospital, let's say, that just got there with no ID. They right. can't even verify if that is someone related to who's calling. Exactly. And the family just kind of felt hopeless in this moment. So this is when they call law enforcement. Now, also the two men that had found the bike on the side of the road, they also um, called law enforcement when they got back to their um, respective location. So two calls did come in regarding this accident. About five miles away from the frantic search, Ida Smith was preparing her dinner in her kitchen. So when Ida is preparing her dinner in her kitchen, this is around the same time as when Sandy gets to the scene of the bike accident. Ida lived in a very remote area of Lower Puna, off of Wawa Road. In this section of the district, most who live here live off the grid, on parcels of land that are several acres in size. Usually that acreage consists of farming land or dense tropical forests. And in Ida's case, it was all forest. Living remotely in the area, she had to have a strong sense of her surroundings, and those skills were going to come in handy that evening. Just a few minutes prior, she had heard a loud sound. She knew it well. Someone had been trying to get from Fisherman's Trail onto Wawa Road, and it happened all the time. So she assumed it was a truck that had braved the off-roading venture, and she just continued about her business. So to just give you a little like description, she kind of lives on this winding road that is very remote, dense forest everywhere. Um, most homes don't have electricity. And this fisherman's trail is this little off-roading trail that is going to lead directly from this winding road to the coastline. So that's why it's called fisherman's trail. May I just interject real quick and just say, how is some someplace so beautiful, yet it seems so treacherous at the same time? Yeah. It's like, it's almost designed that way on purpose. <laughs> well, it is like kind of the MO of nature that the things that look beautiful are the most dangerous. I mean, I've never been there, you know, and, you know, you always hear how beautiful it is and everything, you know, but at the same time, you also are dealing with, uh, you know, treacherous trails and uh, mm-hmm. wildlife and, I don't know, volcanoes. <laughs> That's the motif I've been going yeah. with, John. <laughs> so what she was listening to happened all of the time. She assumed that it was just a truck, like, because it was like a tire kind of like f- trying to find its bearings to get back onto the road. So she continued to start prepping for dinner. But while she was chopping away, she thought she heard crying. At first, she thought it was maybe just kids who lived down the road playing games. And she assumed eventually that their games would end or that they would run away. So she kept to her task. But the crying continued. And when she listened, she could hear pain and desperation in those cries. So she decided to go see if maybe one of the children had been hurt. Ida walked down outside of her house, and she couldn't find the source of the crying. The sounds were emanating from beyond her property, into the forest surrounding her. She walked down to the end of her driveway, and she continued to walk towards the road into the forest. As she was walking into the forest, she approached what is known as Fisherman's Trail. 
the narrow beach access trail was heavily canopied by the forest. By the time Ida had gotten that far, she heard the female's voice that had been crying. She was now yelling and saying, help me, help me. Once she had spoken, it was easier for Ida to find her. Besides the dirt road, in bushes whose branches were broken around her, was 23-year-old Dana Ireland. She had been battered and beaten. She was practically naked and covered in blood. It jarred Ida. She had never seen anything like it, a human being in so much pain. The first thought that went through her mind was that she had to get the girl up and back to her house, basically to get her to safety. So as she approached, she noticed that the girl had beautiful long blonde hair, what would have been blonde, but now was stained in a sickening color of rust. And beneath the swelling and cuts, she could tell that the girl was so beautiful. She tried to grab her and bring her to her feet so that they could get back to safety. But when she tried to do so, Dana screamed out in pain. And it was clear that this girl could go nowhere. The attempt to get her up seemed to rouse her, sending a jolt of adrenaline through her. She screamed in pain, and it was clear that what she had been through was no accident, that someone had done this to her. And it could have maybe been from the truck that she heard earlier, but what Ida was most nervous about was that whoever did this might still be around. And that was scary but she knew that she had to remain strong for the girl and help her. Due to her lack of clothing, it was apparent to Ida that the girl had been raped. Dana tightened her legs together at her knees and was also physically holding them together with her arms. She asked Ida to help her take her pants off, which at this point were around her ankles and kind of like restricting her movement, and her pants were completely soaked in blood. After Ida helped her, Dana clung to Ida. Ida hoped the poor girl was taking some comfort in her holding her, and she knew that she was because Dana was grasping onto her so tightly. After a moment, Ida told Dana that she was going to have to go so she could get her help. Dana was out of it, and Ida did not know if she even understood what she was saying, But she let the girl know that because she lived so far out in the forest, she didn't have a phone. So she was going to have to find someone who could help them. And that's something that's going to be difficult on Christmas Eve, especially because people are visiting their family. And the people that live in remote areas usually go to visit family in areas that aren't so remote. So Ida thought that the fastest way to get someone would be to flag down a car. But the road that she lived on was a very desolate road. She didn't know if anyone would be there and be able to help her. It took what felt like forever, but finally she saw a truck approaching. Ida, who was at this point covered in blood herself because she had been hugging Dana, flagged the truck down. Exasperated at this point, and, you know, finally the trauma of everything that's happening is settling in, of having found someone in the shape that she had and the fact that it had taken so long for her to find someone, Ida actually screamed to the people in the truck that she needed them to get an ambulance right away, that there was a girl that needed help. 
the couple in the truck said that they were on their way to a friend's house and that their friend was actually a nurse. They told Ida that they would call the ambulance from her house. Ida told them to hurry up because the girl was very bad off. The truck sped off into the night, and Ida prayed that they would be true to their word. She headed back to Dana, who she hoped had not died. The couple in the truck had been true to their word. It had taken them roughly 10 minutes to get to their friend's house, and as soon as they did, one of them, as they were explaining you know, to their friend what had happened, the other immediately went to the phone and called for an ambulance. He explained that a woman came running out and said, help, help, a woman has been raped and beaten. He also said that she must have lost a lot of blood because the woman that had stopped them had been covered in it. And although the Good Samaritans had done the right thing and everything they promised, the problem would now lie with the first responders. What an insane situation this is. As you are describing this to me, and I'm I'm getting like such a a vivid picture of everything, you know, imagine you are that person that comes across someone crying and yelling for help in the woods, no less. Just want to let you know that. complete cover of Remind everybody, the woods. I would be scared of just that alone because you don't even know if that's a trap or if people are still there, you know, if the... uh, if the person that committed these crimes are still there. Yes, exactly. That whole thing there is insane enough. And then to literally have to run now to find assistance for this poor woman is crazy. Like, I don't, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand the amount of adrenaline that would probably be going through you just to get assistance to this girl. Right. And now you're essentially responsible for this stranger's life. Yeah. Though I, I will tell you right off the bat, like, that's an interesting location because... I feel like only I feel like only locals would know, maybe, especially in the dead of night, That's a good point. where to drop off someone where they wouldn't maybe be heard. I think that this girl got lucky that someone even heard her from the woods. Right. She was lucky because I think they chose the spot for its desolation. And you would need to know those trails exactly. and to know that because it's off the beaten path. Yep. Wild. So as I said, the problem would now lie with first responders. It was Christmas Eve, and they were working with a skeleton crew. Not only would it take a while to find people to go to the scene, but it would also take a while to get there. In the meantime, Ida had gotten back to Dana, who was still luckily awake. Later, Ida would say that she felt helpless sitting there, comforting this poor woman who had been brutalized in a way that she could never imagine. She prayed that those people that she had found really did call an ambulance. And she prayed that this girl would make it through. So you have to imagine that she's terrified because when she says she feels helpless, she truly is helpless. She went to get help, but now she's hoping that they actually follow through. She's sitting there not knowing if help will ever come. Like, either she's going to see this woman brought to safety or this woman's going to die in her arms. Very scary and very sad. Finally, a sense of relief washed over Ida, like the tide waters that were so close to them. She saw lights. Paramedics were there. From the time that Ida had first found Dana Ireland to when she saw the ambulance, it had been 90 minutes. 90 minutes? 90 minutes, and it's not over. Okay. The reason why it had taken so long was because... At first, they had gone to the wrong location. Finally, 
they had been able to see the remote fisherman's trail. And this is the trail that had been told to them. And remember, it's being relayed by people who didn't even know where it was, and they didn't even know really where it was. But finally, they had been able to see them. But once they got to where this fisherman's trail was, they said that they wouldn't be able to reach the area because they would wreck their truck. So it was debated over whether or not they should try and get the ambulance to the location or they should go there. And all the while, they're wasting precious minutes that Dana Ireland needed. So Ida, holding tight to Dana, just willing this girl to hold on, was so frustrated, like, come get her. And the reason why Dana, and we'll find out later, couldn't be moved, she had a a broken pelvis. Really? So that's why she couldn't move herself. But they should have brought the stretcher to her. Yeah, why not just do that? I mean, listen, I'd hate to, like, throw shade at, like, the first responders just because I I don't know the situation. But, I mean... I think that that would be your first thought. Okay, well, if we don't want to take a chance on getting the uh, ambulance wrecked or stuck, let's just just go get her and bring it to the ambulance. I know. It's a little bit of a confusing situation. Later on, I will tell you that the paramedics were found to be negligent. Really? Yeah. So it took one hour for the ambulance to reach the two women. So in addition to that 90 minutes, it's another hour. Wow. That's a long time, honestly. So how dire Dana's situation was hit the paramedics once they got to her location. It was clear that she had massive internal bleeding, but somehow, maybe a Christmas miracle, she was still conscious. As Dana was being carried into the ambulance, Ida, with her arms still outstretched to the girl, called out to her, I'm coming to the hospital to see you tomorrow. Dana smiled and called back to her, oh, please come. And the woman although strangers just hours before had this like insanely strong connection and and Ida meant it. She was going to the hospital and she just felt this crazy connection between the two of them because they had gotten through this situation together and she was so happy that this girl was going to be getting the help that she needed. What a story. I know. So far, this is insane. It is insane. So what I think, I think we need like a little bit of a breather after that one, I I I would say. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break here and we're going to talk about our first sponsor of the show, HelloFresh, and then we will get back into the story. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Fall is right around the corner. And we all know, as much as we love it, it's our busy season. The kids go back to school, and some of us do too. So HelloFresh is here to help you plan ahead with the tasty dishes delivered to your door. Simply choose your recipes and pick your delivery date. Then lay back and enjoy the last days of summer, knowing dinner is covered. And with HelloFresh, it is covered in an amazing way. HelloFresh keeps your taste buds on their toes with 40 chef-crafted recipes to select from every week. From family-friendly to fit and wholesome, you'll always find new and exciting recipes to try and love. In our house, HelloFresh nights are our favorite. We love trying recipes that we would have never attempted without the confidence and ingredients from HelloFresh. 
And I swear to this day, the winner winner chicken orzo dinner is still the best thing I've ever tasted. And John will forever be proud of his Tex-Mex chicken, bean, and pepper wraps. Not only do the meal kits save us time at the grocery store, but the ingredients we receive are specific to the recipe, so there's never any waste. So go to HelloFresh.com 50TCC and use code 50TCC for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com 50TCC. And use code 50TCC for 50% off plus free shipping. You'll love America's number one meal kit. And don't forget to really check out our sponsors because it helps us tremendously. Okay, let's get back to the show. So by the time that Dana Ireland was brought to Hilo Hospital, it was 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve. She was not doing well. She had already lost a significant amount of blood. She had a lot of internal bleeding going on. And this is something that would make surgery, that the surgery she was about to undergo, very difficult. For four hours, doctors operated on Dana, but it was in vain. Just after midnight on Christmas Day, 1991, Dana Ireland was pronounced dead. Oh, no. I'm sure Ida's not going to be too happy about that. No, she's devastated by this. Oh, man. Now, by this time, her family had been made aware of where she was, and they had been anxiously awaiting the outcome of the surgery. The doctors went to inform the Irelands that their youngest daughter um, had died as a result of the injuries sustained during her attack, and that they had not been able to save her. As you can imagine, they were shocked. This was supposed to have been the trip of a lifetime. Dana, a recent graduate of the University of Virginia, had gone with her parents to visit her older sister, who was living in Hawaii with her boyfriend. It was going to be an extended holiday vacation. This was like a time for them to all be together. Like, Dana had just graduated, so she didn't necessarily have any obligations yet. She was going to start her job hunt soon, But her parents were older. They were retired. So her older sister, Sandy, is like 13 years older than her. So she was kind of like this younger baby, like their miracle baby. And they thought, how perfect. We're retired. So we've got nothing going on. Dana just graduated college. She has nowhere to be. So let's go stay with Sandy for a few months in Hawaii. What a life. That's awesome. I know. And that's what this was supposed to be. And the precipice of this visit was supposed to be celebrating Christmas together as a family. But in just the snap of a finger, their worlds were completely ripped out from under them. Dana, their bright, athletic, beautiful, and idealistic daughter, their daughter that was planning on joining the Peace Corps, had just been raped and savagely beaten, basically to death. Not only had Dana died, but she had suffered greatly. And to say that they were devastated would be an understatement. On Christmas morning, the investigation into Dana Ireland's death began. There was immediately a lot of pressure. First of all, murder cases were rare in the district. And on top of that, this was the rape and murder of a tourist. 
Although this was a remote part of Big Island and not really a hub for tourists, murder of any kind on any of the islands was bad for the tourist industry of Hawaii, which provided income to a lot of people and to most of the state. The faster the murderer was caught, the better it would look for local law enforcement and the travel industry. To the seasoned detective working the case, it seemed to him from the initial scene of where the bike was found that this had been an opportunistic attack. Someone had seen Dana riding her bike, they struck her with their vehicle, and they thought that based on the bent frame of the bicycle, and then they took her to a remote location where um, this hurt and vulnerable girl was attacked further. Their killer was sadistic and brutal. And the detective, someone who had spent his life in Puna County, wanted to get this person off the streets, not just for the optics of the island, but also for the safety of his community. In addition to investigating the scene where the bike had been found, detectives and crime scene analysts also went to the location in which Dana herself had been found. There, he found more of Dana's clothes, ripped and covered in blood but he also found a man's t-shirt. The entire front and back of the shirt was covered in blood. It was almost soaked. The only parts of the shirt that revealed its once electric blue color were the sleeves and sides. There was also on kind of like the, the upper, like right side breast of the shirt, there was a Jimmy Z logo on it. So this, of course, is going to be a big clue. The killer had basically left his shirt behind. I mean, that is a really big clue. I also like feel like another big clue here. I, I mean, I mentioned the one uh, already was just like the, the whole like maybe it could be a local just based on the location. But the other thing is, I mean, I could be thinking too much into it, but could it also be that it was done because they knew about the specific timing of the year? Maybe they knew that that area isn't too populated you know, because of the holiday, there's not a lot of police or a lot of things moving around or a lot of people that would see this person do this. Yeah, I I think that that's really a big factor. I mean, unless you're a man who's killed his pregnant wife, you don't really go fishing on Christmas. You know what I mean? (laughs) I like that, by the way. That was funny. (laughs) Um, That was cool. You put that in there. But no, seriously, though, I mean, I think that that's a big clue as well. I think they go tandem with each other. The location and the timing of, of this, I think, is a big part. I agree with that. So the next thing that the detectives wanted to do is understand the initial interaction between his perpetrator and his victim. He decided to sketch out the initial collision. This sketch became known as the vacation land sketch because that's the name of the area in which the accident occurred. Um, Dana's sister actually lived in kind of like a little section of town known as vacation land. And she had unfortunately been hit only half a mile from her sister's house. That's pretty close. Yeah. So they are going to name it this because it's the end. Basically, she got hit the entrance into what is known as vacation land. So based on the name and from what I could understand, And if anyone is from Hawaii and wants to help me out, that would be wonderful. But I got the impression that this is a remote location on Big Island where those from Hawaii have vacation homes or go to vacation because it's so isolated and away from tourists. So this is like considered the hidden gem of Hawaii. 
Okay. So it's like where locals go to vacation to get away from a lot of tourist activity. I mean, that makes sense. Yes. We all want to do that. Right. But... (laughs) Unfortunately, now it has been devastated by that lava flow from 2018. But that just seemed to have been the case in 1991. Maybe it changed over the years, but that's what the situation seemed to be back in the early 90s. So back to that sketch. Based on the way they kind of set it up, Dana had been hit by a car traveling on Kapahokai Drive. The car had made contact with her at the intersection of that street and Iliani Road. But based on the tire marks on the road, it was clear that the vehicle had not been traveling on the same side of the road as Dana. Now, this is like a red cinder road, so they're able to see the location of the tire marks of the car. And this meant that the the car had to swerve to the other side of the road to hit her. So it hadn't been an accident. It had been an acceleration. I'm hitting you on purpose because I even have to travel across the road to do it. It also could have been a way for this person to cut her off, you know, because obviously if he if his intention is to knock her off her bike, mm-hmm. he doesn't want her to get away on the bike. So turning into her to stop her from moving, you know what I'm saying? Right. Well, the from the way where the location of the bike was and the tire tracks, he hit her from behind. Okay, so it was just... And just, like, knocked her forward. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the fact that there was, like, a clump of her hair at the scene, it does show that there was kind of, like, a struggle at the scene as well. And then the detective theorized that he must have brought Dana into his vehicle because the spot in which she had been found by Ida Smith was five miles from the collision site, and it was extremely remote. This person had wanted their privacy. This made the detective think that this man must also be a local, like you said, because (laughs) he seemed confident that he could get this done in that amount of time on this road, which actually is a pretty busy road because it is the entrance point to the tides and also this vacation land area. I also want to say something as well. It also kind of gives us a better... I'm sure the tire tracks would give, like, police a a good indication of, like, what kind of tire maybe... And then maybe it would lead to some other kind of, like, what kind of vehicle it would be on. Right. But another thing, too, would be... Think about it. They... Even though you're saying that the first responders were found to be negligent, right? If they were having a hard time getting an ambulance over there, that would indicate that it it has to be way smaller than an ambulance. So it also can limit the kind of vehicle that we're dealing with because it it has to be big enough to put a few people in a car but small enough to go onto this road with maintaining the inconspicuous kind of vibe there. Vibe, yeah. I understand what you're saying. That actually, the kind of car it is, is going to come up and be like a really big deal later on. Okay. So like you said, the detectives thought like if this man knows about Fisherman's Trail, then he has to be a local. So he seemed confident that that was a good thing to go on because not only is this a remote area, there's not a lot of people in the area. Like the ambulance drivers didn't even know about Fisherman's Trail. So it's like this is something that only locals would know. On the 27th of December, an autopsy was performed on Dana. Now, this is hard because some issues, you know, pop up 
and we'll, we'll get into it, but everything that happens is inevitable because when they found Dana and brought her into the hospital and then doctors had to immediately start trying to do life-saving things like surgery, intubating her, um, when that happens, a lot of physical evidence is lost, um, even when paramedics are assisting her. But that's not negligent on their part or the doctors because their efforts to save her life take precedence over evidence collection. The police and doctors would rather have their victim survive than find a hair. But in this case, it's all the more tragic because the life-saving attempts did not work and did get rid of some evidence. So little evidence was found on Dana's body. The only physical evidence that they'd been able to retrieve was a small semen sample that was found on her body. Okay. The damage that had been done to her body was extensive and told a tale of both great suffering and of great strength. The fact that Dana was able to stay coherent and awake through her blood loss and pain is a mark of incredible resilience. Dana had small cuts and bruises and scrapes covering her entire body. The medical examiner stated that most likely from the collision with the car, she suffered a fractured clavicle and bleeding points on the brain. That's just from the car accident. Once she was moved to a second location, her injuries were more extensive. She had been badly beaten and raped. She suffered a fractured pelvis and a ruptured bladder. She had trauma and extensive bleeding to her vagina, and there was a bite mark on her left breast. The official cause of death was massive internal bleeding. This attack was one of the worst that the island had ever seen. Wanting to know more about the last conversation that Dana had, the detectives went to speak with Ida Smith. Ida had been devastated to learn that Dana had not made it. She said that the girl had been in so much physical pain, and she knew that it had been unbearable for her. She said that Dana was talking, but it was almost more like she was babbling. Her thought process and sentences were almost incoherent which is understandable considering her extensive injuries, blood loss, and the fact that she just went through a traumatic event. She said that she had mentioned something about a friend or a friend of a friend, but nothing she was saying really made sense, and Ida was just really trying to comfort her through the whole thing. The detective asked Ida to recall how she had found Dana, And she told him first about the truck that she had heard get stuck on the road. Like, she said this was something that she often heard happen as vehicles try to get from Fisherman's Trail back onto the main road. And then a few minutes later, she had heard the crying. So the vehicle part of this would later become a point of contention. In her initial statement, Ida said that it had been a truck. But she later revealed that she had never actually seen the vehicle. She just assumed that it had been a truck because those were usually the only vehicles that braved Fisherman's Trail. But she never actually saw what vehicle it was. And that's a big deal. Yeah. You know, and that's the worst part about that kind of eyewitness stuff we talk about all the time. It's like it's, you know, it's not 100%. No. You know, she's just basing it off of what she usually sees in the area. And especially a victim that, like Ida did, the discovery of the body, being an eyewitness, that was a severely traumatic event that happened for her 100 percent. so that skews your you know remembering and your viewpoints and all that stuff 
Next, the detectives, after giving the Ireland family some space to grieve, reached out to talk to them about that day. Sandy, Dana's sister, said that Dana had asked to borrow her bike so that she could go visit a new acquaintance that she had made during her extended stay with her sister. The person that she was going to meet was 27-year-old Mark Evans. Evans, detectives came to learn, would visit the area because of its surfing, and he was actually a well-known surfer throughout the island. He had a reputation as a local with an eye for pretty women, especially those who visited the island. However, Dana's family explained that although Dana was gorgeous, she was very, very shy, and that she brushed off sexual advances of Mark. She liked him, but she wanted to let him know that she was interested more in a relationship than she was just a sexual relationship. So the two of them had actually, and this is what he's going to later say too, been dating for a month, but they had not had sex. Okay, but now we have somebody that has had contact with her, you yes. know, so that, I mean, that's kind of important. Plus, um, I mean, if we're talking about trails and beaches and things of that nature, what better person to know that area than a surfer? Very true. So uh, right now he's on my radar. Yes, and he was definitely on police's radar because he was the person that Dana was going to see that day. Um, Sandy said that it had been Dana's intention to go see Mark and ask him if he would like to have Christmas dinner with her family because she knew he didn't have anywhere to go for the holiday. So, of course, detectives want to speak with Mark Evans. Could he have gotten frustrated with the fact that Dana was refusing his sexual advances? Did he just want a physical relationship and to not take things slow? Could happen. Could be. Evans told them that he had been dating Dana for about a month at that point. He thought that she was beautiful and that she was a good person. She seemed a bit naive and seemed younger than she really was, but that was really because she was so shy. But he liked her and he had not minded that their relationship had not yet become physical. And like I said, I think some of that, like, interactions between him and Dana, it's because Dana was truly, like, the baby of the family. Like, she had come 13 years after Sandy, and they were so excited, and they kind of, like, treated her as, like, someone that they all wanted to take care of. But that's not to say that Dana wasn't a very smart and ambitious woman, because she was. So Mark had said to them, and he's going to give this statement several times, and he never wavers from it, that she did leave his house. And he even remembered thinking that he was nervous that, like, the shorts that she was wearing, like, if she fell on that road, because it's like a red cinder road, it's not paved, that she would really hurt her legs. He remembered thinking that as she was driving away. So he said that she got to his house at around 3.30 p.m. and that she had stayed for about half an hour and then left to bike back because it was going to be a seven-mile trip back. And Mark voluntarily gave a sample of his DNA to be tested against the semen sample that was found on her body. Okay, I mean, well, that's good. Now we can maybe rule out him It's always right now. <laughs> good when people voluntarily give their DNA. Absolutely. <laughs> And detectives really, like, tended to believe Mark in everything that he was saying. He had very specific details. And as they were going on and questioning other people, people had seen Dana after she left Mark's house. 
So that was kind of making them think that unless he went to go seek her out afterwards, nothing had happened to her at his house. Okay. Which we kind of know anyway because of the bike accident that took place. But he didn't seem like he had any animosity towards Dana. And the family never really thought that it was him. So now the detectives have to rethink the whole investigation. Maybe they thought it hadn't been someone who knew Dana at all. Growing up and living in the area, the detective knew that there was a dark side to Lower Puna County. Drugs were a big problem. The environment was very conducive to growing marijuana. And because so much of it was produced, it was sold at a very low competitive rate, which also led way to many people selling drugs, thus the seedy underbelly that is present in every paradise is going to shine to the surface. But before we get into that, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break to hear about our final sponsor of the show. And this one we know you'll love. Support for today's episode comes from Relatable. This one's for my citizen detectives out there, aka everyone listening to this podcast. If you love nothing more than a juicy mystery or an unsolved case, you will love Relatable's newest game, Who Killed Mia? You may know them from their internet famous games like What Do You Meme, Let's Get Deep, and New Phone Who Dis. So you know their first foray into the murder mystery game is going to be unlike anything else out there. Who Killed Mia is a murder mystery story for the internet age. Centered around the fictional but incredibly realistic influencer Mia Starr and her untimely death at the Replay Awards, players work to solve the case using a mix of physical and immersive digital evidence, like hacking into Mia's phone, as well as gripping live-action videos to uncover her killer. This sensational game is available on the Relatable website, as well as Target, Walmart, and Amazon. You can follow along on Instagram at RealStarMia and at WhoKilledMia. The game night that we had with WhoKilledMia was unlike anything we've ever done before. Not only did our true crime hearts love every single second of it, but John got to live out his own private detective dreams. But it was also so cool to experience such an interactive game. Now, we don't want to give anything away, but we just want to let you know that tearing open each envelope to reveal the top secret information was so cool. And I don't think I've ever been so giddy playing a game before, even when I was a kid. This is the perfect fall game night. Pour yourself a pumpkin beer or a glass of wine and get ready to become a private investigator. So, Relatable wants you to know that they are calling all crime junkies. Who Killed Mia is for all game lovers and detectives. Get this game for your next game night and find out who killed the world's favorite influencer in Who Killed Mia, a new kind of murder mystery game from Relatable, the creators of the hit games What Do You Meme, and get 20% off with promo code TCC at relatable.com slash whokilledmia. Citizen Detectives, it's your time to shine. So again, that's promo code TCC at relatable.com slash who killed Mia. You'll love this one. Okay, so let's get back into the case. 
On top of the problem with drugs, police officers also knew that there was some resentment held by the natives on the island. Um, the fact that their paradise was considered to still be more affordable meant that a lot of mainlanders were beginning to come to the area and they weren't happy about that. And Dana was the sister of one of those mainlanders. In addition, there was also resentments that the police force often catered to the tourists and mainlanders at the expense of the natives. So there was a lot brewing right under the surface when it came to this community and crime and relationships between Lower Puna, the people visiting, and their law enforcement. So there was just a lot happening, and it's really like the politics of the area. And most people, when they visit places, they don't necessarily know about local politics, and there was a lot going on here. I mean, what a crazy dynamic that must mm -hmm. be, you know, especially to deal with, like, when you're the police. Yes. It's very difficult. Right, especially when you're, like, this detective was a native to the area, but the people of the area were feeling like, well, you're not helping us, you're helping these outsiders, basically. I see. The detective theorized that if this had been a local from the island that didn't know her, that maybe Dana might have been, and this is a strong possibility, at the wrong place at the wrong time and saw something or wandered across something that she shouldn't have. Now, this was a theory, though. But the only thing that made this detective think that that might not have been the case was that if someone... If Dana had seen something she wasn't supposed to have, they would have just silenced her right away. It wouldn't have been this like kind of elaborate thing. This seemed like the factor here was to hurt Dana and the sexual attack. So there was that sexual element that if she would have just wandered upon something, they would have wanted to get rid of her quickly and efficiently, whereas she was still alive when they left her. Right. And it was probably more of, we need to get out of here as fast as possible now after I just, you know, dropped her body there, let's Correct. say. And it would have been more of that, like a dropping of the body, not the assaults that took place. But the detective had to pursue every avenue. So that is something that he was going to have to eliminate. So in order to pursue this further, the police department made a list of people that they knew to be criminals in the area. Everyone on that list was spoken to. Locals in the area were also spoken to to see if anyone knew anything or had heard anything, because usually if something happened on the island, there was talk about it. They learned nothing from talking to the criminals, but they were able to figure out what had happened to Dana after she had left Mark's house. She had been spotted passing Opie Heiko Church at 4.25 p.m. Then she was seen at a surfing beach called Shack's. It was a beautiful spot, and she was seen observing the waves and taking in the beauty of the landscape, which a lot of people do. It's a very popular spot. She had been there for about 15 minutes or so, and then she had left around 4.40, meaning that the first car, because remember, the first car encountered her bike at around 5 p.m., so this had happened not long after she had been hit. She almost made it home. And she was about half a mile from her sister's house when she was struck by the car. And then law enforcement got a big break. This break came from a couple living in the area where Dana had been hit. They called into the police station and said that they think they might have information about the case. 
They said that on Christmas Eve, they had seen a man with a dark colored pickup truck loading a person into the back of his truck. They said that they thought this was odd, so they remembered it. So the couple was asked to come into the police station and give a formal statement and look at a lineup of local felons to see if maybe the man that they saw putting a woman into his truck was one of these guys. The man, like it was a woman and a man, the man identified one of the felons. He said that this one felon greatly resembled the man that he saw put a woman in the back of his truck and that man was named Wayne Nasario. We know how that is not something you could always rely on. Like how far are we talking about? Could it have been something where just kind of like a mistaken of identity or I don't know, you know, because if you're far away from what's taking place, those specific features might not be as clear as you think they are. There's a lot of things taking place. Um, There's a lot of things eyewitnesses they can maybe misunderstand a situation um the power of suggestion because everyone's talking about dana ireland's case in the area there's a lot of factors let me just ask you one thing so you could put me on the right path maybe okay is there a reason why we're not looking into the vehicle more for example like are they able to get good tire tracks or figure out like what kind of car this is quicker because that would help there's a lot happening with the vehicle. At first, they're eventually going to call in a collision specialist, which we'll get to. Okay. But at first, their their analyzation of the tire tracks is that the tracks are from a tire that's wider, like the size of a truck. Okay. That's their first interpretation of the tire tracks. And I just have to leave it at that. That's fine. I just want to make sure that it's not something that is just glossed over. No, it's going to be deeply looked into. Gotcha. So detectives are going to look into 25-year-old Wayne Nasario before going to speak with him. They were able to see that he and his younger brother, Andy, owned a pickup truck. So that lined up with what the couple said. The brothers were no strangers to law enforcement. They had been arrested before, but most of their charges were drug-related. Both brothers were brought in for questioning. They were evasive with the police and could provide no solid alibis for Christmas Eve, which is wild. How do you not have an alibi for Christmas Eve? (laughs) Um, They couldn't provide an alibi for either the afternoon or the evening. Both brothers were swabbed for DNA at that interview. And detectives had also asked the brothers if they could search their vehicle, but nothing was found during the cursory glance that they were allowed to have. Knowing that these brothers were involved in the drug scene, the detectives reached out to their informant network to see if anyone knew anything about the brothers or had details about where they were around Christmas. One informant came forward and said that he had been at a party that the Nosario brothers had been present for on Christmas Eve. He said that in the late afternoon, the two brothers left in their pickup truck and were gone for about two hours. He said that one of the brothers had been wearing a Jimmy Z shirt. And when they returned those two hours later, he was not wearing the shirt. He had come bare chested back to the party. Well, that's a really big clue. That is a huge we got, clue. We got to follow that up now. I would say so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Once they got back to the party, the brothers began stripping their truck. They tore it apart. 
This was obviously very interesting to the detectives and, if true, made the brothers look very guilty. But it was something they were a little confused about because when they saw the truck, it was fully intact and seemed to be all the original parts. And if you remember, Ida Smith had said originally that she thought she heard a truck struggling to get back on the main road. Later, she's going to say she never saw the vehicle, but detectives were still under the impression that she had seen a truck. And now this couple had seen a man put a woman in the back of a truck. So what the detective wanted to find now was hard evidence. He wanted the truck tied to the accident and the bike. And they also thought it would be very wonderful if the DNA that they found on their victim would be matched to one of the brothers. So they sent in both DNA from the brothers. And don't forget, they also have the DNA from Mark Evans. So they're going to test the semen sample against those three people. And the next thing that they wanted to do is they wanted to call in a crash investigator to see if the truck from the Nosario brothers was a match for the injuries sustained, not just on Dana, but also the frame of her bicycle. Right, because one would imagine that that if a car or a truck, any vehicle was to hit an object, that there would be some level of surface scratches or surface dents or anything like that. Exactly. So this crash scene investigator is internationally known on the microphone. Um, His name is Ken Baker. He has literally written the book on traffic collisions. It's titled Traffic Collisions Investigation, and all 518 pages of it were published with the Northwestern University Center for Public Safety. When Baker took a look at all of the damage accrued, he believed that it indicated that whatever vehicle struck this bicycle, it would have had to have been 12 inches off the ground, and the bumper itself would have had to have been four inches in size. He is able to determine this using the damage that the bike sustained. So that meant that it would have had to have been a car with a low front and a small bumper, and a small car is not a truck. That's true, but we can tie it to something. If we could believe Ida and her account of a car struggling. Well, she doesn't know what the vehicle was. She just no, knew it I know. struggled. But think about it. A car with a low clearance would struggle more than a pickup truck, let's say, with tires that are capable to be to get out of a situation. Oh, 100%. So I agree. maybe there is a possibility that what she heard struggling was a car that couldn't have been, or I should say, shouldn't have been there. That's a really good point. You know? You would hear a struggle from a smaller vehicle more than you would a truck. Correct. So to get more information, the detectives went back to their informant. They asked him if it was possible the brothers had not been in a truck that day. And this is when the informant breaks down. And he said that actually he had lied to them about everything. Everything? Everything. Okay. He had just been upset about a drug deal gone bad with the brothers, and he was trying to get back at them. <sighs> like, seriously? Come a girl on, dude. died, you idiot. Oh, man. Total informant status lost. I would hope so. But that sucked for detectives. So now they go back to the couple because they're like, all right, these are 
are people that don't have a motive to lie to us. So let's kind of talk to them and ask them, like, are you sure it was a truck? And when they ask the couple, they start to backpedal a little bit, too. They said, well, actually, we can't be sure if it was a truck anymore. And the detectives were like, what? (laughs) That is interesting. You know, and all I could say to that is, could we be dealing with just a um, misidentification of the vehicle? So, like, meaning, is it something that they don't know what it is? For example... You know, like crossover cars or like think about something that looks like an El Camino where it's like it has a trunk, but it's a car. I mean, um, like a bed of a truck, but it's a car like it could be anything like that. I think that you're being too nice to this couple. Maybe. <laughs> what I think happened and it does happen, unfortunately, with investigations when something is in the media a lot. People like to be a part of these things. And sometimes, unfortunately, people lie to be a part of these things. Um, to gain some notoriety or attention. And I think that they heard that detectives were looking for a dark colored truck. They knew that it was a hit and run with the bicycle and that they put her in. So I think that maybe they were just fabricating this story. And when the story fell apart with the informant or that they were trying to pin it on people, that they got nervous and probably backed down with their story. I mean, that's just so crazy because now we're literally talking we're practically at square one now oh because all we have is the crash expert that's so funny look at my next sentence we're literally back at square one (laughs) you are you should start writing these no we don't want that (laughs) we do not want that well unfortunately on top of both recampments basically the detectives of this case are going to deal with a massively devastating blow basically a third one that is going to bring them back to square one. And that is the fact that they get contacted by the laboratory and they're told that the semen sample that had been sent to them was too small to be tested. Okay. It's going to infuriate me because for 1991 it is, but maybe not in like now. Now? (laughs) Well, we will get into that don't worry i just hope that everybody does the right thing with evidence like i hope we just say okay can't be tested let's not ruin what we have it is it is safe okay the lab keeps it thank god yes all right but like we've said we are back at square one and even kind of like square one minus dna evidence that they thought they had so it's almost like square zero that's (laughs) where we are (laughs) As time went on, there were no advancements in the case, and this caused people to grow angry. Tourists stayed away from the area. Local women were terrified that a monster walked among them, and law enforcement was feeling a pressure that they had never felt before. The people of Lower Puna were very upset about the handling of this case. The women of the area organized a march where they demanded action and that local law enforcement did their job so they could feel safe again. But no one was more angry than the Ireland family, who were very vocal about the fact that they believed that the local authorities had botched the investigation from the beginning. From Virginia, the Irelands put a lot of pressure on the Hawaiian Police Department, and they were also very critical in the media and demanded that there was a lot more involvement in this case. 
John Ireland was a retired army officer, and he had plenty of time to dedicate to the tracking of his daughter's case. He himself posted a $28,000 reward for any information that would lead to an arrest. Now, we know how tips go. They're good and they're bad. This tip generated many calls into the hotline, and most of these leads were found to just be people who were looking to cash in on the tip because when you offer a tip to an area that there are parts of it that are very impoverished, that's what you're going to receive. But finally, after months and months of the investigation yielding nothing new, an anonymous tip came in. This was interesting because it meant that maybe they weren't looking for money, so it sparked interest. The tipster said that a man named Frank Pauline knew something about the case. The detectives knew who Pauline was. He was a big deal in the criminal underbelly of the area. He had a long rap sheet that included assault and a hit and run. Okay, maybe there's a correlation there, maybe? I don't know. Now, although they followed up on every lead, this is one that the detectives were eager to follow up on. Pauline was brought in for questioning, and he said that he wasn't involved in the crime at all, but he did have an idea of who had been, the Schweitzer brothers. He said that he heard that they had done it through the grapevine, and that it had been older brother Ian, who was 20 at the time, that had raped and beat the woman, but that both brothers had been in the car when the girl was hit. At the time of the murder, the younger Schweitzer brother, Sean, was just 16 years old. The detective who was familiar with the area already knew that Pauline had bad blood with the Schweitzer brothers. The families actually had bad blood together. They lived across the street from each other. So this lead was filed, but detectives didn't follow up on it because they didn't believe Frank Pauline. Pauline did not have a history of being honest with law enforcement. And they thought that the same thing was happening again. And they also thought they were being duped again, like they had been by their original informant. I see. But you know what? You follow up every lead. I mean, you're finding out from one criminal about another possible criminal. I mean, you just got to follow it up because at this point we are at zero. I mean, there are things that they could probably do that I like I, I would want to do. Right. But but I mean, they haven't done it, you know. So if you're at the ground floor, just take the guy's word for it. You, you might, might as well. well look into yeah. it. Yeah. You might as well. The Hawaii Police Department believed that they had taken all the leads that they had as far as they would go, but that nothing fit and no one was a definite suspect. Despite the fact that they had considered and interviewed about 100 suspects, years would pass and the resentment of the Ireland family grew. They believed that someone was getting away with murder. The Irelands did not want the case of their youngest daughter to be forgotten or go unsolved. So, three years after her murder, the couple, John and Louise, returned to Hawaii. The first person they went to visit was Ida Smith. The visit was an emotional one. Ida took them to the spot where she had found their daughter. And as you can imagine, that was probably hard for the family. But it was good um, closure and bonding between the Irelands and Ida Smith. 
Next, the Irelands turned up the heat on the police department. They were vocal, and they had been tourists. So what they had to say was greatly affecting the economy of the area. John was described as being relentless and methodical about the pressures he put on detectives. And not just the people working on his daughter's case, he also got involved in the political scene in Hawaii, asking people to help keep his daughter's case alive. I mean, listen, there's nothing better than than an advocate, an advocate that won't stop that endless pursuit for justice, right? My only thing with that is this, and it's normal because that's his daughter, you know? Of course. Uh, so I'm, I don't want to step in or sound like I'm being insensitive, but th- there's one thing, though, that's a negative to that, and that's putting that much pressure on the police because it is affecting them uh, with their economy and everything. You don't want it to go down a road where now it becomes – all right, guys. It's a witch hunt. We just got to find someone that matches this crime and just lock them up because if we don't, then we're going to lose out on all, you know, A, B, and C. And they're not going to leave us alone. Exactly. And I, you know, I would want, no matter what, no matter if it took 100 years, <laughs> I would want the person that actually did it, not just what is convenient right. for everybody in the island, on the island, you know? No, because I agree. Because we don't know or- if this person would even do it again. So that's what it really comes down to is it's it's affecting them and their bottom dollar. So I don't want it to turn into that where it really should be about yes. the justice for this family. That's I, what I'm getting I at. know that I would go to the ends of the earth if that happened to my daughter. Yeah. Or anyone that I knew. However, there is a difference between healthy pressure and forced pressure, which is going to make a police department do desperate moves, which we don't want. That's I that's get what it. I'm trying to get at, no, but I, I'm not I trying to agree. be. Yeah, I'm not trying to be insensitive. No, I get it. Yeah. So when the detective met with the detectives during this three-year trip, and they got no new updates, the meeting obvi- did not go well, to say the least. There was a lot of arguing. Um, uh, both sides of the aisle were very frustrated with this situation because, like, like you said, the police said, what do you want us to do? Like, we're trying to find the person who did this. And they were frustrated because nothing new had come up. The detectives, especially the main detective, wanted the Irelands to know that they were working tirelessly to solve this case. But the lack of new information was not for lack of trying. They were working this case as much as they could with their small force and extremely limited resources. Like they were trying. Yeah. You know what? There is things that you could do, though. And I think it would be bad of me to not even say what I would do. Well, I'm just going to come out and say it. If you know that a car was used in the commission of a crime, car, truck, whatever, you name it, and it was used to hit somebody off of something and it has damage. The longer you wait to find out where that vehicle is, it could be fixed. But that could also be in your benefit. You need to look around and look at other people's. Like if you can, you go look around for cars mm-hmm. that match the description. Cars that match the tire. Cars that match the damage that the bike gave right. to the car. Go to your local shops where vehicles were repaired. Look to see if anybody came in with any kind of damage that would match that. Right. Like, those are things that you would do. I mean, literally, you would see that on, like, friggin' law and order. Like, I mean, it's I'm not like a... Uh, I know. I'm like this crazy sleuth. These are easy things that you could do. Well, maybe they were doing these things, but it's not things that they listed themselves as doing. Maybe you're right. But one... 
limitation that they did have was that there was no transfer paint onto the bike. Okay, but there would still there could be damage on the car. Well, they have determined what type of car or vehicle it could be based on this collision expert. But that hurt them too because the tire tracks are indicating a truck, but the hitting of the bike indicates a small car. So even the the clues that they have contradict each other. Right, but that's why I said I was getting technical. It could be a uh, a lowered truck. It could ha- it could be a car with wider, thicker tires. Right. You know all the, all these things. It can go in a million directions. But I think that like looking at local shops and doing things of that nature would have benefited would have them. benefited them. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if they did or did not. But right. if they I didn't, can't say for a fact. Right. But if they didn't, that 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 would be a travesty because I think that is large would have helped. Because yeah, large. Clues. I'm sure in a remote area, there's a limited collision centers and limited cars because. You're on an island right. where everything is imported. I agree with you, John. These are all things that I just... I know. It makes me infuriated. Sorry, guys, if I'm getting <laughs> loud. But uh, anyway, go ahead, go ahead. So for another three years, Dana's case remained stagnant until a familiar face said that they wanted to talk to law enforcement again. It was Frank Pauline. Pauline had fallen on some hard times. He was serving a 10-year prison sentence for sexual assault. But he was being threatened. He owed people a lot of money. And he feared that someone was going to take action against him because of that. So he thought that if he gave police information on the Dana Ireland case, that he would be afforded preferable housing within the prison system and protection from those threats. Again, the detectives dealt with the same dilemma here. Pauline was a known liar, and if he had the same story to tell, they don't know if they're going to believe him unless he can offer them real proof. When Pauline met with detectives, he told them basically the same story that he had before, except this time there was a new detail. He knew what had happened to Dana Ireland because that day he had been with the Schweitzer brothers. Okay, that's a big development. But this is the thing, too. I know that the department thinks that he is a flipper, where they're not really sure whether or not he's giving useful information or not. But that's an easy solution. You have the DA draw up, um, you have the DA or whatever the team, you know, the attorney draw up a, a contract or whatever, a stipulation in his. He says the truth. If it comes to be true and it leads to an arrest of that crime, then he can get off on what he's doing. It's like, I don't like, why wouldn't even that be on the table? Well, the problem is this. If the case that they have is based solely on what he's saying and there's no physical evidence, then they can't say that because who's to say he's lying? No, but what I'm saying is if they continue to grill him and they continue to go with this and it turns out to be indeed true. Then, then that's it. They then the deals. That's the way the deal is on the table. Right. So like even the first time when they were unsure of his truth. But if there's nothing to detect whether he's telling the truth or not, what are they to do? Is what I'm saying. Uh, I know. I just you know it's just like one of those things where you just want there to be a stepping stone, a place where you can get more like viable information from. I would want to make sure that everything was unturned. This case is very important to the discussion surrounding our justice system 
when we talk about cases that are built on jailhouse informants or people who are getting benefits through the justice system because how reliable is that testimony going to be when there's a quid pro quo happening i agree it's it's complicated yeah so in order to verify what frank pauline said happened they arranged a tour of the crime scene with him to see if he could describe what had happened and how much it did with like added details so there were some details that were not released would he know them okay that's a good step Pauline explained that on Christmas Eve, he and the Schweitzer brothers got together to smoke crack. At some point, they decided to go to the beach. So they piled in Ian Schweitzer's VW bug. As you could imagine, the detectives were like, whoa, that car would completely match the profile that had been given to them by their collision expert. Oh, my God. The bumper. Yes. A detail that had never been made public. Ah, okay. We're headed somewhere. We are headed somewhere. He said that while they were driving down the road, they had seen a woman and they made a quick U-turn and that Ian accelerated up behind her, cut across the road to hit her. Next, they put her body in the car and drove to Fisherman's Trail. In his story, Ian's the one doing all of this. So he's the 20-year-old older brother of the Schweitzers. When asked why they would take her to Fisherman's Trail, he said because it was isolated. Pauline said that once at Fisherman's Trail, Ian pulled the girl out of the car while he and Sean, Ian's younger brother, stayed within the car. He said that Ian had been the one to rape her and murder her. The two of them were just bystanders. Pauline said that his shirt had been the Jimmy Z's shirt. And when he helped move Dana, he'd gotten blood on it. So they left the shirt at the scene. They went to the Schweitzer's house where Pauline said that as Ian washed down the car to get any like evidence off of it, that there they threatened Pauline and said that if he ever opened his mouth, that he would die. Okay. I think that this is this man saying, when people take a very backseat, I guess we could say technically, like actually literal backseat to this crime, like, hey, I was there, but I did nothing. It was all the other guy. That is very unbelievable. I agree because he's minimizing his role. Right, because sometimes the people that do that are the ones that actually did all of it. Correct. You know. So our man Ken Baker, the collision expert, is brought in again because the detectives want to know if the VW Beetle bug, whatever you want to say, could have been the one to cause the crash. Baker said that based on the damage to the bike, that he would be looking for a U-shaped bumper which most certainly is a match for the Beatle. Like when I was listening to this guy's testimony, I felt like I was in my cousin Vinny when she's explaining like the car connection. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. So he said the height and size of the bumper also matched the damage done to the bicycle. The only thing that stopped him from saying that Schweitzer's Beatle had 100% been the car involved 
was the fact that there was no blood on the bumper and the fact that, you know, and he understood that it was six years later, but there was no transfer paint from the bike onto the bumper or vice versa. So like he's saying, I can tell you that this type of car would most more than likely have caused this damage, but I refuse to say 100% because there's no transfer of anything. Right. And then, saying and as an fair. expert, I can't do that. Right. Without additional information, I can't give you a, a definite. Right. I mean, that's normal. So Ever the Professional, um, <laughs> that is his final opinion. And that's also what he will testify to as well. Okay. The information given by Ken Baker must have been enough for the district attorney because charges were brought against both Ian and Sean Schweitzer. Years had passed. And the district attorney had hoped that they would be able to get more evidence tested. Now, all physical evidence that had been submitted to the lab um, was still at the lab. So they asked the lab as the years have gone on, like, can you look through that physical evidence again and see if you can find anything else? So they did. And what they found was another semen sample that had been found on the hospital sheets that Dana had been on. However, because the sheets had not been searched fully, the sample had degraded too much to be tested. Okay, but did they? I'm sure they still collected it, though, right? They did. Okay. Because there was no physical evidence, just the account of Frank Pauline, because even though we are in 1997, they're still unable to test that small semen sample that was found on Dana's body. So they still have no physical evidence. And that must be hard, too, because here we are in a situation where we're deadlocked. There's a possibility that these people are involved, but we can't test the DNA to mm-hmm. prove, indeed, that it is them, right? right? But then it's like, do you really want to move forward on a case, let's say, that you're not really sure if you're going to be able to convict and then they might get away with it. Well, that's actually what happens because as of this time right now, they tried to indict the two brothers with just the account of Frank Pauline and the indictment did not go through. A grand jury did not indict them and the Schweitzer brothers were released from jail and the community was outraged. Posters were made calling for the arrest of the brothers And if the brothers weren't arrested, the posters called for vigilante justice. In an on-the-spot interview with a news reporter, Sean Schweitzer told the reporter that he felt bad for what happened to this girl. It was tragic, were his words. But he and his brother were blameless. They were innocent. And then the case against the Schweitzers all but disappears, except for the car. When Frank Pauline makes a statement to the media... That he was lying. Oh, really? So Frank Pauline recants everything he said to the police. When interviewed, he was callous in his statement. And he said, they believed my lies. What can I say? I'm a good liar. I cannot undo what I did. You know what I mean? I was wrong for lying and hurting plenty of people. When asked why he did it, he said the Schweitzers were scumbags. This is what the detective had feared from the beginning. And now law enforcement was dealing with an even bigger issue. They were approaching the 10-year mark. 
and at 10 years, the statute of limitations for the charges of kidnapping and rape would be up. Don't you find that crazy? I mean, that's a whole other topic, I guess, for another day. But don't you think the statute shouldn't go away for such crazy crimes of kidnapping and, and rape? I, I think when connected to a murder, they should not. I mean, listen, I don't think there should be any statute of limitations when it comes to these violent crimes, but especially when connected with a murder. Yeah. Wow. So, because it shows aggravated murder. Right. So, just months later, a prison inmate is going to come forward and see how this case is just, like, filled with just prison inmates or people who want things from the jail system coming forward. And it's like, are we believing these people? Like, why why is the only evidence in this case informants? I know. It's, it's very frustrating. This case is very convoluted. So a prison inmate comes forward and says that he would like a deal because he had some information involving Ian Schweitzer. And the inmate is named Mike Ortiz. Ortiz said that while he was in prison with Ian Schweitzer, that the man confessed to him. When asked the story, Schweitzer told Ortiz the same story except for one major difference. It had not been him who had raped and beaten Dana Ireland. It had been Frank Pauline. Schweitzer said that Pauline had raped her and then beat her with a tire iron. So now it's a he said, he said situation. But actually, Schweitzer isn't even the one saying it. Another inmate is saying it. Yeah, right. And like, now do we believe that now? I see. I get what you're saying. This whole case is that's kind of how it is. Right. Like, is this inmate lying for the police because they want to be like, get Frank Pauline for lying to them about this case? Because one was trashing the other. Now the other one's trashing Frank now. Yeah. We have seen jailhouse informants working for the prosecutor's office before. Like, so we, I don't know. Desperate to find out what was true in this case, the detective searched for a witness that was not going to be an orange if there was a trial. And finally, they were able to track down other witnesses that had been with the three men that day. But again, they're just witnesses. These men said that they were drinking with Pauline and the Schweitzer brothers on the day that the attack happened. They said that they all had observed Dana bike up to a scenic area that overlooked the ocean, the shacks, that area, which other people had seen her at. So they knew that the sighting of Dana could be corroborated by other witnesses that don't have a connection to this group. The men said that the whole time Dana had been taking in the view, the three had been watching her. And when Dana went to go bike off, the Schweitzers and Frank Pauline left an Ian Schweitzer's beetle. These men also confirmed that that day Frank Pauline had been wearing a Jimmy Z shirt. Okay, so certain things are coming together, but it's still well, an it's eyewitness. Hard to, it's also hard to say, too, because you're asking them basically nine years after the fact what happened. Yeah. And why did these men not come forward earlier? Is this motivated by something? So there's so many questions. The district attorneys felt confident in their case against Pauline and the Schweitzer brothers because they had Ortiz, the car, so the collision expert testimony, and now these new witnesses. So they chose to go back to a grand jury and present the evidence that they had. 
they go into the indictments and all three men were indicted and charged with kidnapping, rape, and murder. Okay. Based on the evidence that they had. Yes. In the second degree. Okay. Although they got the indictment, the prosecutors knew that they would have a hard time because their cases were weak. And without physical evidence, except for the connection, I guess you could say, between the bike and the beetle, um, it was everything was just a theory. It, I, I would say it's even weaker than circumstantial. I agree with you. Because we're just going on the eyewitness accounts of a bunch of people. Correct. And some of them being informants themselves. Yeah. It's, it's like nothing is solid enough to use. Right. Except the DNA that they can't test. Correct. So the trial was set to begin in 1999, almost nine years after the murder of Dana Ireland. One looming problem that the courthouse faced was trying to find impartial jurors. Everyone on Big Island had heard of this case. Many women that lived in proximity to the Hilo courthouse had protested that the police solve the case. And everyone remembers the posters that were put up when the Schweitzer brothers were released from prison. Everyone was somehow connected with the case or knew someone who was. When finally both sides had agreed on a jury, the trial began on June 20th, 1999. The media was out of control. You couldn't go anywhere on the islands without hearing about the case. And it was likened to Hawaii's OJ trial. In the trial, Frank Pauline's half-brother testified against him. He said that his brother told him that Ian and Sean Schweitzer had been driving when they passed a girl on a bike. They had made hand gestures to the girl and she was trying to ignore them. This got Ian angry, and he went after her. But the prosecution had a problem when it came to Frank Pauline. They knew that he was going to recant his story. So how would they present what he said? The solution was Pauline himself. Frank Pauline, before he recanted, gave many interviews to reporters so the prosecution played the tapes of Pauline telling reporters that he couldn't sleep, that he was having bad dreams, and that Dana was coming to him in his dreams and asking him to help her, and he had to help her so she could rest, and he sounded in those tapes very sincere. The jury would later say that if Frank Pauline was lying, why would he talk about his guilt and pain? Why wouldn't he just tell the fake story? So here we're left to ponder, was Frank Pauline right? Was he just a really good liar? Or was he telling the truth? Well, his track record shows that he's very untruthful, right? Yes. So it's hard to believe somebody. It's like the boy who cried wolf, right? It's true. I mean, can we believe this after everything that he's lied about? Yeah. You know, or Is this could, just another con? It could be a con because he's in the presence of a, a judge and a, and a jury. So it's possible that maybe he thought he'd change his M.O. and make a story that would sound make him sound more human. Right. Right? Hard to, hard, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Because was he just playing a game with everybody saying, like, I'm going to lie and said I did it and then recant, but I would have – I got the benefits that I wanted to get out of it anyway? Or was he lying about the recant, recanting of a story? It's – you just don't know. 
And that's why if there's no evidence, not even circumstantial evidence, uh, this case should not have went to trial. Yeah. I mean, they need the proper evidence to convict. It needs to be strong enough. Right. Now, Ida Smith testified, which was truly heartbreaking to hear, as did Dana's family and Mark Evans. The devastation caused by this attack was evident, and the jurors were visibly upset and saddened by their stories. The jurors also heard from Baker, the collision expert, who said that more than likely the car that hit the bike was a VW bug. In the end, both Pauline and Ian Schweitzer were convicted. Pauline of second-degree kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder. He was sentenced to 180 years in prison. Wow. And Ian Schweitzer was sentenced to 120 years. That's insane. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's actually, wow. You know, I mean. They I, did a double up. Like they okay. doubled the life sentences and then tripled the life sentences when it came to Ian and Frank. So like Frank got like a triple life sentence when it came to the three charges and Ian got it when it came to the two. Now, I'm okay with the uh, the punishment because if they are in, in guilty. If they're guilty. If they're guilty. Now, that's the problem that I have is it's not sitting right with me because the evidence didn't. I feel like if I was a jury member there, I wouldn't think that the evidence provided would have been good enough for me to say they're guilty. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would be able to. I think what happened was the emotionality of the family and Ida Smith's testimony is what pushed this choice from the jurors over the edge. And the fact that everyone had been seeking justice for this poor girl for basically a decade at this point. And, and let's be honest. There's not anybody that they could find that doesn't know what about, about what happened here. Right. So it is an impartial jury. I think it is. So Ian's guilty verdict came on the eve of his brother Sean's trial. It scared him, and he agreed to take a plea deal. The deal was that they would take Sean's plea if he told the truth. And while he told the truth, he would have to be hooked up to a polygraph test, which we know was inadmissible. Sean told the prosecutors that he was in the back seat, his brother was driving, and that Frank Pauline was in the passenger seat that day. He said that Pauline did have on a Jimmy Z shirt. He said that they were driving and that they saw Dana and Pauline yelled out, oh, there's that girl. And then he kept saying to Ian, hit her, hit her. And Ian accelerated and hit Dana Ireland, running over her. Sean said that Pauline then brought the girl into the car, into the passenger seat, and he got in the back seat, and then they drove to the remote location of Fisherman's Trail. He said that it had been Pauline that had taken her out of the car and raped her and then beat her, what they thought was to death. He said that he told Pauline to stop but never physically did anything to stop him. Sean Schweitzer, who at the time was at the time of the murder was 16, pled guilty to kidnapping and manslaughter. And for that, he received one year in prison. But he had already been in prison for over a year awaiting his trial. So he got time served. And he walked free. But he would have to be on probation for five years. After the trials were over, 
the Ireland family sued Puna County for the botched paramedic response, and they were awarded $452,000. The family chose to open a scholarship in Dana's name. Exhausted from the effort put in, it seemed that John and Louise Ireland had some semblance of peace. And just four months after the trials ended, John passed away and was hopefully reunited with his younger daughter. Louise followed them three years later. But this, my friends, is not where I tell you to not park next to Vance. Because this case is far from over. What? That's not the end. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Okay. In 2015... Some information was released about this case. And since then, there have been some startling revelations that the public was completely unaware of. Uh, Do tell, please. Okay. (laughs) During at this time, 2015, the Hawaiian Innocence Project took interest in the case of Ian Schweitzer and Frank Pauline, because those were the two who went to jail. Remember, Sean was released and had to do five years probation. However, Frank Pauline would not get a chance to be involved in any part of the process because in May of that year, Frank Pauline was killed by a fellow inmate. The man who murdered him, Daniel Hood, said that he had gotten into a scuffle with Pauline and that he had hit the man in the head with a rock, killing him. And he said he did it because Pauline was a snitch and he walked around like he owned the place. The incident took place while the inmates were given yard time at the Southern New Mexico Correctional Facility. Although the authorities deemed that Hood acted alone and the incident raised eyebrows because it came soon after the announcement that the Innocence Project was taking on the case. So people were thinking, like, maybe there's a connection with him being murdered and the Innocence Project starting. Oh. Like, maybe there was, like, a hit that this guy should die because we don't want him to get out. I see. But they did a thorough investigation to this murder that happened in the prison, and they could not find any connection with Daniel Hood getting, like, a hit. Like, basically following through on a hit on Frank Pauline. And let's be very honest, this man is in prison because he lied about committing this crime. Well, I don't want to say he lied about committing this crime, but he's the one who got himself in prison because he said, hey, I was there when she got murdered and so were these two brothers. So he started this all. Yep. Because he was playing some sort of game, whether it's true or not, he was playing a game with the police, and he thought he was going to win. And this is where he ended up. The most dangerous game. Yeah. But Ian Schweitzer was still alive and still very much in prison. So the Innocence Project only takes on post-conviction appeals in which DNA evidence is available to be tested or retested. But what is unique about this case was that there was DNA evidence, and guess what? What? It had been tested. Finally. And it had even been tested before the trials of Ian Schweitzer and Frank Pauline. Wait, I thought they couldn't test it. They could in 1998. The trials began in 1999. So, I know. Odd. So, I'm going to go over all of the evidence that made the Innocence Project take interest in the Ian Schweitzer case. 
okay? Now, this is evidence from the project's website itself, and it will take us back to the beginning of the case. And of course, I'm going to interject my thoughts or known details regarding certain aspects of the evidence based on what we know from the investigation. So the Innocence Project states that the focus on the VW Beetle is odd because early on in the investigation, police were searching for either a dark colored pickup truck or a light colored van, a van which could have hit the bike in the same projected way that a VW bug would. Now, this was the focus of the investigation because the tracks on the red cinder road seemed bigger than that of a normal tire because witnesses saw those vehicles in the area. However, they're failing to recognize the trajectory of the car search changed because of the consultation of the collision expert. So they're saying like, how do you go from a truck to a VW bug? Well, it's because the collision expert said it, it could not have been a truck. Okay, so you're saying it maybe swayed their I'm just saying investigation? that the Innocence Project has some really good points. That's not one of their greater ones Gotcha. regarding okay. this. Their second point, which is really a point of contention with this case, is information in exchange for benefits. So the public really was not made aware of all the benefits that people got for giving information in this case. We know that this case was based on information given from informants and or those who benefited from giving information. Frank Pauline confessed that he and the Schweitzers committed the crime when he was in prison for sexual assault charge. And in exchange for giving this information, he received better housing. Remember, because he was being threatened because he owed people money. But he also got other benefits. He got additional calls to his girlfriend the promise of special visitations, and his brother, who was also involved in the confession, was getting breaks on drug charges that he and other members of his family were facing. So remember, I remember like looking back and going, wow, well, his brother is saying that he did it, but his brother can't recant or else his deal would go away and so would the deal of the other members of the family. So while Frank Pauline recanted because he had already received his benefits, his brother can't recant because then he would lose his deal. I see what you're saying. So it's it's actually very complicated. Right. And it can, it, it's changing that whole trial then, I feel like. Yes. And the project also made mention of the deep resentments that existed between Pauline and the Schweitzer family. And the project also made mention of the deep resentments that existed between the Pauline and Schweitzer families that lived across the street from each other. So like this went back decades and decades. So it's like, was Pauline playing the long game and getting these guys arrested? I see. Hmm? Huh. The Innocence Project also made note that the Ireland family was active publicly and politically to get pressure on authorities. But I... This is hard to say because we've kind of already braced this. I don't think that the Ireland family did so with negative intent, thinking that the police were going to, I don't want to say act negligently, but pursue this case without evidence. I think they were just putting pressure on because they wanted to find out who did this to their daughter. So I don't think there was malintent from the family. No, and I and I think that we, I mean, listen, 
you cannot put blame on the family. And like I said, even when I said what I said about the pressure on the on the, on the right. police department, it and can lead to bad things. It lead, can lead to bad things. But you name me one family that wouldn't try to advocate advocate for somebody who just passed oh, away. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Like I mean, that's that's ridiculous. So I mean, I would even I write that off. I would too. Yeah, I agree. But then there's the DNA, and this is huge. By the time of the trial, DNA technologies had advanced, and the semen sample found on Dana had been tested. Okay. It did not belong to either Schweitzer brother or Frank Pauline. Get out of here. It was run through CODIS, and there was no match. So during the trial, the prosecution was basically going off the fact that like there was another man with them there that day so but this happened before the trial so wouldn't the trial like how how does that work if they have evidence that that is concrete enough to say every all three people that are in this courtroom right now that is being tried for kidnap rape and murder okay they're saying that there was someone else there (laughs) Yeah, but how do we know there, there's a, a correlation between the three that are sitting at this on the stand right now and somebody else that well, hasn't been caught? And another argument I have is that people in this case are doing nothing but telling on each other. Right. So you're telling me everyone's telling on everybody, but they're keeping the secret of this fourth man? No way. No way. There's, there is no cor- correlation between the three and someone random. Right. So now there's more DNA evidence. Because during the trial, DNA technologies were not advanced enough to test the Jimmy Z shirt. And the reason why was because the shirt was so saturated in Dana's blood that they didn't have technology at the time that would be able to remove a second sample from a sample that contained someone else's DNA. Okay. But they did have that technology in 2015. So they petitioned the shirt to be tested. And this became like a hot mess because this evidence had been sealed and then the prosecutor's office like wasn't releasing it. So like judges for justice and organization got involved to like release the evidence. Well, finally, in 2017, they were able to test the shirt and the shirt that was said to have been on Frank Pauline that day. uh, According to the results, there was a semen stain on the shirt. Okay. The semen stain did not match any of the three men. What it did match was the DNA of the semen found on Dana's body. So this is that unknown male. So same DNA. And then another interesting thing happened. So you would think when you wear a shirt, especially now because DNA is so sensitive, especially 2017 as well, when you wear a shirt, there would be some transfer of DNA, especially in the armpit area where we sweat. So they said if this shirt belonged to Frank Pauline, his DNA would be somewhere on it. And it's not. Not anywhere on it. Not in the armpit area, not anywhere on the inside of the shirt or outside of the shirt. So essentially, the only DNA that is found at the site at Fisherman's Trail belongs to Dana and an unknown male. I mean, let's be real. The the three men that are there are not... Like the, these the outstanding, shining examples of what citizens should be. But no, they're not necessarily great people. They were smoking no. crack on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. There's there was a lot of bad blood between the families, but it doesn't mean that they committed this murder. And the DNA proves that. Yeah. And also the DNA proves. I would proves- say 
it doesn't prove it. I think it, the DNA evidence excludes them. All right, I like the way you put that better. Because I don't yeah. want to say that they. I don't. I, I don't want to say definitively that they weren't. That, like this is a very complicated touch and go case where there are a lot of people that are happy about this innocence project involvement, and there's a lot of people that are not happy. Okay. Because I, what it yeah. does is it removes the justice that Dana received. But is it justice if these met boys didn't do it? Well, I'm I'm a big advocate for making sure that justice was done and it's correct. A- agreed. You don't want someone sitting in jail that's innocent. Right. And you, more importantly, you want those victims' families to really feel like they got what they, like they get what they deserve. You know, like, and well, remember at this point, the only family member that's alive is Sandy. Is, yeah, Sandy. I understand that. But I'm just saying, even in general, though, that's what we want. That's why I'm big with that. Like, right. I'm willing to put my wall down if there's new evidence that shines light on Correct. somebody new that it's it's not the three that we're looking at here, then I'm all for that. I completely agree. You know, I don't think it's ruffling anyone's feathers. I just think it's we want real justice for, for who did it, you know? Right. So the following information comes directly from the Hawaii Innocence Project because it's a lot and I don't want to mess it up. Okay? Gotcha. With the hopes of freeing Ian in 2019... Hawaii Innocence Project joined with the Innocence Project in New York and entered into a joint reinvestigation agreement with the Hawaii County Prosecuting Attorney's Office, where we agreed to share information and help identify the unknown male whose DNA was on all the crime scene evidence tested. So the prosecutor's office is working with the Innocence Project because they do not want an innocent man sitting in jail and they want to try and help find the person who did it. Both Innocence Projects also hired two new experts to evaluate the tire tread evidence found at both crime scenes and the pattern injury on Dana Ireland's body that was purported to be the bite mark. So we need to investigate this bite mark. And the bite mark analysis should have been done in the original trial because that technology was there. The tire tree expert, Matthew Marvin, concluded that Ian's VW Beetle could not have produced the tire tracks at the Wawa scene, likely did not produce the tire tracks at the bicycle collision scene either, and that the same vehicle may have produced the tire tracks at both the bicycle collision scene and the Wawa scene, meaning because the Wawa Road is where the connection is with Fisherman's. Yes. So they're saying that both tire tracks he would say we're at both scenes so it was most likely the same vehicle and that it's more conducive to a truck than it would be a vw bug it's too big to be that of a bug a forensic analyst also reviewed the pattern injury found on dana ireland's body and concluded that the injury on dana ireland was not a bite mark as testified at trial lastly in 2022 Sean Schweitzer met with the Hawaii County Prosecutor's Office and recanted his prior confession and stated that both he and his brother Ian were innocent of Dana Ireland's murder and had not been involved in the crime in any way. Sean also took a polygraph examination and he passed it, which is weird because he also passed the original one, but I think that just shows how inconclusive polygraph tests are. On January 23, 2023, 
the Hawaii Innocence Project and the Innocence Project associated with New York, their attorneys filed a new Rule 40 petition seeking to vacate Ian's conviction and release him from custody. The following day, on January 24, 2023, Ian Schweitzer was released from prison. Okay. He served 23 years. It was 23 years of what would have been, I'm sorry, a 130-year sentence. I mean, that's wild. And I'm sure a lot of people were upset about that. Yeah. You know? But I, once again, I, I don't want to say always, right? But uh, uh, I would say like 95% or more uh, evidence doesn't lie. Like the, the DNA evidence doesn't lie. And I don't want someone in prison if they don't belong there, if they didn't do it. I, I completely agree with you. And the fact that there's nothing in CODIS and there's nothing anywhere that points to anybody else that we know. Yeah, like it's really upsetting because we could get it if, you know, we have the DNA. If we just knew if, you know, if this person did some something somewhere else, if it was in any kind of database, we would win here. And I think that if they were hanging out, I mean, not to judge people. But if they were hanging out with the three of those people that day, they would have been arrested for something because it seemed like they were involved in illegal activities. Right. Um, In a statement made by Schweitzer's attorney for the Hawaii Innocence Project, the following was said. Whenever you have a white female victim, it gets a lot more attention than people of color and native Hawaiians, said Kenneth Lawson, the co-director of the Hawaii Innocence Project. The parents, understandably, were becoming more and more infuriated. There was an insurmountable pressure to solve this case. And when that happens, mistakes are made, some intentional and some unintentional. I think that's put very well. Yeah. This is a hard one because what it does is it leaves justice for the victim in the wind. It's sad for the Ireland family and for Dana. But it is true that experts say that cases like this, a disorganized sexual homicide, are usually always committed by single perpetrators. And Dana's sister did say that she felt as if she had some type of stalker that was following her around the island. And maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's what she was talking about when Ida was there, friend of a friend who's that maybe did this. That saw her yeah. alone and took the opportunity. Could it have been a mistaken identity? Did they look alike at all? They look exactly alike, her and her Could sister. Could it have been mistaken identity? Could have been. I mean, it's, it is, right? A possibility yeah. of that. I mean, they're 13 years older than each other, so I think they would have known. But it could have been like, if you can't get one person, you can get the other. But it was Dana that had the, the stalker, not the sister. The sister just said Dana talked about how. Oh, I'm one. sorry. I yeah. misunderstood. Okay. But that is a possibility, too, because the sisters did look a lot alike. Now, this is sad because, if true, a man was thrown in prison because Pauline basically just felt like it. And he said it himself. He's a good liar. Had him being a good liar earned himself 180 years in prison and Ian Schweitzer 130? If there had been a fourth man there, Pauline would have told about him in a heartbeat, but he didn't. So it's pretty obvious that that was a lie. So Ian Schweitzer was in jail for 23 years for a crime he didn't commit. Correct. 
And that means that someone got away with murder and that right now they're free. Right. And of course, obviously, we don't want another victim. But like, it's sad because you never know. We never caught this person, so he could go out and do it again. It's really scary, actually. I think the biggest thing here, though, too. Well, it could have also been a tourist. A tourist maybe. that was told by locals about this trail. Or, or maybe he just happened upon the trail. Like, we don't know. It could Right. Like, we mentioned locals. But, like, what if it's not? What if it's uh, someone that's visiting that rented a, a van or rented a car? Yeah. You know? Um, you know? Uh, and thought that, that would be a great place to drop somebody off after I commit my crime. I mean, the possibilities really are endless here. And it's just sad because, you know, there is some truth and we've seen it before in other cases where there are tourists involved, involved where it's like, you know, you want justice, but the pressure to make sure that people are coming to your place of destination, you know, you want that influx of money from outsiders to come in and, you know, you want that. And if you have cases like this that are hanging over your head, it's kind of hard to get people to come see you. Right. Right. And you need that. You need that income. And at the end of the day, it does come down to money. Always does. You know, pressure. You know, I think that even if the parents didn't put pressure on the police, the police still would have felt the pressure from just the economic um, uh, repercussions of that, of not having people come. I completely agree. You know, though I do see what they were saying, um, that Innocent Project, you know, I'm not saying he's wrong. Or whoever wrote that article, I'm not saying it's wrong, but, you know, I think that it also, the economic part has a a role to play. I think it does. I think it always does because there's that pressure because you want people to stay there. And it's just sad because there was no justice. Somebody lost two decades of their life. And at the end of the day, it just should not have ever went to trial because there was no physical evidence. All they had was informant after informant. So the fact Agreed. that that indictment even took place is, is where we should take a look at the justice system and say, you know, is it fair that people are being indicted with no evidence, even just circumstantial? Most of the time, those cases are thrown out because lack of evidence. So, so this case should, should have happened as well. Yeah. it's I, And I think that that goes with the fact that because this case happened on an island where everyone knew about it, there was no way those men weren't getting indicted. There was no way they weren't being charged. I just think that this case is so wild. There's so many different layers to it, but it's it's a complicated one. And we want to know what you think about it. We want to know what you think about the indictment, the trial, the involvement of the Innocence Project, and really just what I take away from this case is that what it's so sad that Dana never received justice. And I am glad, though, that we have the Innocence Project out there working on cases like this because that is just wild. True. And you know what? At the end of the day, they still have DNA. They still have DNA evidence. Yeah. And, you know, there's no statute on murder. No, there's not. So, you know, there's always the possibility that we can get the justice for the family and for our victim, Dana. So, I mean, that's the only, I guess, silver lining to this. I agree. That was nicely put. All right, before we go, what we want to do is we want to say thank you to our newest supporters on Patreon. So we want to say thank you to Emmy Allett, Katie, Lotus, Emma McPherson, Beth Smith, Autumn Vanderhoek, Susie Cuskello, Catherine Keto, 
Andrea Garcia, Nicole Murray, Courtney Gunter, Tara Byrne, Caitlin, Kelsey, Ali Ruiz, Sarah Dam, Kathleen Dowling, Sierra Daggett, a pledge update from Pamela DaCosta, Lauren Shirley, April Riley, Kelly Landon, Mary Glaze, Rihanna B, Alea McLeroy, a pledge update from Jessica Garcia, Kasra Shiverti, Tamika Pettis, Robin Pittman, Pamela Coburn, Brittany Cooper, Jennifer Cowles, Anne Duran, and Brittany Based. Thank you so much. And if you guys want to enjoy two bonus True Crime Couple episodes a month, you can go to patreon.com slash true crime couple. And now we can finally say it. Until next time, guys. Don't park next to Vans. Bye, guys. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.